Hello everyone, and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. So, as you may know, I'm planning a new series, but before I get there, I thought to take a few episodes just to answer a few questions that I've gotten. I got this question from my friend Gray quite a long time ago, and it's about time I actually answered it. Here's the question. You have shared your sermon on rethinking hell and spoke about the difference between capital S Satan and small s Satan in the Job series. What is your interpretation of passages of scripture which deal with exorcisms or casting out demons, spiritual warfare or fighting or weapons, fire and burning symbolism, etc., found especially in the New Testament? There is obviously a lot going on in the question, so I'm going to split up my answer. I'll deal with the exorcisms, casting out demons, spiritual warfare stuff first, and then I'll get to some hellfire and burning symbolism after that. Keep in mind as we go along that anything I say on any of this stuff is just a fraction of what could be said. So while I'm going to keep my answer fairly specific, there would be scriptures and symbols that I'm not going to be able to fully account for here. Also, uh, ahead of my answering, if you want to read a book that deals with well, some of this stuff, especially the demon stuff, in a way that I think is very useful, given the interplay of skepticism and faith that is part of my own answer, I think uh, you can maybe read Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchanted by Richard Beck. It is a superb book. It's easy to read and it's thought-provoking, uh, but it also has a lot of heart. So now for my take on the question. I'm going to make use of a very particular lens through which at least some scriptural demonology can make at least some sense, although this is certainly not the only lens through which demonology can be understood. It is the lens of René Girard's mimetic theory, which will not be a major surprise to many of you. I think mimetic theory is very helpful on this front because it allows for for a measure of agnosticism regarding the existence of demons. It allows us to read most of the biblical stories of demons and demon possession from the perspective of assuming that something is going on without necessarily arriving at the simplistic view that what is going on involves little red creatures with horns, tridents, and pointy teeth. Very briefly, just to recap, mimetic theory suggests that human beings share desires, both in intimate and in more public and large-scale ways. Crowds are created by shared desires, whether temporarily or more long-term, and relationships are also created by shared desires. The result is that our desires move us towards wholeness or away from it, towards harmony or towards conflict, rivalry, and even violence. And this means that human beings can interact to affirm created being or to denigrate it. The issue then is the realm of human psychology, which is very much at issue in stories about demons and exorcisms, I think. It seems likely to me that the category of demons fits within the more general category of forces that erode the goodness of being. Demons may or may not be fallen angels, but the idea of demons certainly designates states and forces, especially strong individual psychological tendencies that act against Uh, our being in the world and act against the world itself. So we might speak of demon possession to designate a kind of mimetic imprisoning of a person's or a collective's consciousness. I'm fairly sure that some of you out there will not appreciate my 
defining demon possession in this way, but that's okay since we are in more speculative territory and I would certainly be open to other ways of seeing this. In any case, the virtue of my interpretation is that it treats the idea of a demon as a void or deficit, something closer to non-being than to being. And this makes more metaphysical sense to me than the more literalist interpretations of, of demons. And with all of this in mind, I can now get to uh, something of an answer to Gray's question, which is more or less, what do I do with those passages in the Bible that deal with this stuff? It helps that uh, this is something I've actually done a fair amount of research on. Um, a while back, I wrote a chapter for an academic book called Philosophical Approaches to Demonology, which was published by Routledge back in 2016 and edited by Robert Arp and Benjamin McCraw. In that chapter of mine, which deals mostly with the rather bonkers demonology of King James, um, of the King James Bible fame, I also deal with a way of reading the exorcism of the Gerasene demoniac by Jesus, which we find in the New Testament. The story of the Gerasene demoniac is told in the book of Mark in chapter 5 and in the book of Luke chapter 8. Jesus is with his disciples and they get to the country of the Gerasenes and when Jesus gets out of the boat, he meets a man who's been hanging around tombs and this man is possessed. No one can control him or keep him chained up anymore and he keeps on screaming among the tombs and gashing himself with stones, so he's persecuting himself, which is significant as I'll get to. The minute this guy meets Jesus, he screams at him and Jesus responds by telling the unclean spirit to get out of the man, to which the man replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. And that's quite a creepy thing to hear coming out of anyone's mouth. And the demons then beg Jesus not to send them out of the country and instead to send them into some pigs that happen to be feeding nearby on the mountain. Jesus gives permission to the demons and they go into the pigs as promised. The pigs then run down a hill and drown themselves in the sea. Because of this, the poor possessed guy, well, he was poor, but he happens to be fine. He is cured. And the people in, in the area then actually ask Jesus to leave. Obviously, this is a very rough retelling of the story but it'll do for now. It gets to some of the core elements of the story. So we can get a little bit now to uh, some interpretation. The setting of the story is a an oppressed community because the Romans were occupying their homeland. And what we have here is a man with a terrible, we could call it uh, a persecution complex. He is possessed, so to speak, by the Roman army. Thus, the self-identification of the man as legion. He speaks in the voice of Rome rather than in the voice of his own people. This is to say he is absolutely obsessed with his captors in maybe something of the same way that a ideologically possessed snowflake might be obsessed with the patriarchy or per perhaps how the far right might be obsessed with the evils of feminism or something like that. These things are not real, but they're conceptual designations that render people passive and helpless in the face of the so-called powers and principalities. This is true of the Gerasene demoniac. The poor man has opposed the Roman system and lost. As a result, he has found himself in the grip of a way of being that conflicts with and contradicts his own Jewish identity. 
So what does this demon-possessed man do? Well, he happens to spend a lot of time hanging out near tombs. And that is, generally speaking, a very weird thing to do. He is hanging out where corpses are. And this fits with the Gerardian idea that victims often become obsessed with victimizers, but also with their own sense of impending doom. The man feels very deeply the persecution of the Romans, and he is certain of where it all ends. He, he mimics the persecution of the Romans by actually persecuting himself. René Girard writes this in his book, The Scapegoat. I think it's very interesting. Notice the mimetic character of the Gerasene demoniac's behavior. As if he is trying to avoid being expelled and stoned in reality, the possessed brings about his own expulsion and stoning. He provides a spectacular mime of all the stages of punishment that Middle Eastern societies inflict on criminals whom they consider completely defiled and irredeemable. The man is hunted, then stoned, and finally he is killed. That is why the possessed lived among the tombs. But the man is also, to make matters worse, persecuted by his own people. There is a hint in the story that they keep the man around. There are various ways to understand this, though. One is to think that perhaps they are genuinely trying to look after him. But based on how they respond to Jesus later, it seems more likely that they enjoy having someone around who is worse off than they are. So they chain him up. They try to restrain him, but their restraints don't work. All of this sets up how desperate the situation is by the time Jesus shows up. Keep in mind that Jesus' actions are overwhelmingly dismissive of victimhood and victimization. Even when it comes down to his own crucifixion, he does not take on the posture of the victim. It's a very subtle thing, but I think it's important that we see it. Jesus thinks the whole oppressor-oppressed game is nonsense, and at no point is he fighting for the oppressed in any of the ways that you would expect. He lives as if the powers that be, the powers and principalities that Paul talks about, have nothing to do with him, because they don't. He rejects religious ideology, for one thing. He rejects tribal ideology and even the ideology of the state. And he goes about telling people about this intimate kingdom of God that transcends the human realm and, of course, includes it. Jesus is going to turn the whole world upside down as a historical fact, but also as a fact of thinking how best to live. So when he gets to Gerasa, he sees exactly what is going on. He tells the man that he doesn't have to be obsessed with the army. And again, no matter how you read it, a miracle happens. There are some pigs who die. Some animal rights activists might be upset with this, but this is exactly what happens. The unclean mob, in other words, no longer has power over anyone. They plummet off a cliff into the primordial waters, if you like, if you're thinking of Genesis imagery. As Gerard notes, it's important that the thing that leaves is the mob, not the person. This is a, an amazing reversal of the usual structure of scapegoating, which is all against one. Here, the all loses to the one. The mob is wrong in its assessment of the value of the person, and it gets to buzz off. The man is cured. But this really upsets his community. Communities like their gossip and their scapegoating, and now they don't have someone worse off than they are. Jesus had robbed them of their scapegoat. Certainly, 
this could be one of the reasons why they were so quick to ask Jesus to leave. Well, there you go. So that is a short version of how you can read just one story. It's a way that sees that this man, this uh, possessed man, is free to find better ways of desiring and living. He is no longer trapped in dualistic one right way thinking, and he can adopt a more open and human posture towards the world, which is, I think, something that we all need to do. As Richard Beck points out, spiritual warfare means taking a stand against what denigrates God's good creation. So singing a hymn to get your fear to subside, that is spiritual warfare. Cooking a good meal and taking it to someone who is grieving, that is also spiritual warfare. A kind word to a stranger or a handout to someone who is in need or the refusal to enable an addict. When we affirm the goodness of created being, then we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Anything that works towards the healing of the world is spiritual warfare. It just sounds way cooler when you think of it in terms of superhero language complete with weapons and armor and maybe even literal demons. But in all of this, of course, my own interpretive pronouncements can't be taken as final or complete. In addition to the fact that I don't believe any interpretation can work that way, I have to be particularly open-ended in this interpretation because I don't know for sure exactly how this happened, which means that my focus will necessarily be on the meaning of it, and thus my Gerardian approach here. And the Gerardian approach for me helps because it does provide a lot of clarity on the meaning of what's going on here, maybe more clarity than what I find typical in, in some of the readings of the story. At least the this particular kind of interpretation allows for a kind of uh, applicability to our everyday lives. We are all in danger in a way of being possessed and of getting caught up in the wrong political fights instead of actually finding some kind of freedom and wholeness, uh, the kind of freedom and wholeness that we actually need. So I think that works pretty well. And with that, I can now get on to some hell symbolism. Uh, clearly, there's a crazy amount of stuff that would need to be discussed to give the subject a fair hearing, but I'll give you the minimalist version in the hopes that you'll do some exploring of your own, at least if you're interested. By the way, something I'm very excited about at the moment is that one of my favorite theologians, David Bentley Hart, has a book coming out in September that I cannot wait to read. It's called That All Shall Be Saved, Hell and Universal Salvation. My suspicion, knowing Hart's amazing work, is that he will address at least some of this stuff in a way that I cannot do in a very short Q&A podcast. Maybe it's something that I will come back to at a later stage. Still, keep in mind that Jesus doesn't talk about hell ever. The concept of hell, no matter how you want to imagine it, is not in the Bible, except in the form of a very inexact translation. You can have a look at John Sweeney's fascinating book, Inventing Hell, Dante, the Bible, and Eternal Torment, for more on this. There are two words used in the New Testament in at least that come out of Jesus's mouth that are translated as hell, namely Hades and Gehenna. In uh, one of the letters, I think it's 1 Peter, it, the word Tartarus appears, in that, but that's a different issue. So Hades is usually taken more or less as the equivalent of Sheol in the Hebrew Bible. It's this notion of a kind of shadowy but 
fairly neutral place of the dead. Gehenna is a literal place. This is the one I want to focus on here. It's a place just outside Jerusalem, and it is mentioned in the book of Jeremiah specifically as the, we'll know it as the Valley of Hinnom. When Jesus talks about that place, as is more than hinted in the book of Jeremiah, he is talking about the actual literal place where children were once upon a time sacrificed to the god Moloch. And when Jesus warns people about being destined for Gehenna, they would have been thinking of that literal place where literal people did terrible things in the name of a pagan deity in the not too distant past. There is much more to this, but this is key since we have clues in the Bible as to what Jesus may have been on about in talking about Gehenna. He was not, for the record, talking strictly about the afterlife, but was using a metaphor to talk about this life. There was fire involved too, I should warn you, this next bit is going to get a bit disturbing. The idol of Moloch's hands were heated in the fire and then the children to be sacrificed to this tyrannical, nonsensical in a way, deity, were placed on those fiery hands and burned to death without being drugged beforehand. It was assumed by the people, of course, that this is what the god Moloch demanded. Anthropologists remind us that there were always drums beating so that the parents couldn't hear the screams of their offspring. So when Jesus is talking about Gehenna and fire, he's talking about acting in the world as if Moloch is in charge, not God. Moloch demands bloody sacrifices and torture and loss of life, but Jesus's message is something totally different, anti-Molochian in nature. There is a lot more going on in this too. For the ancient Jews, children were the future. In Abraham's time, eternal life was not an afterlife state. It's most likely that Abraham figured that when his time on earth was up, that was it. There was no expectation of an afterlife. This is why having children was so important. You can find this theme in the Hebrew Bible again and again and again. Children were your eternal life. They were the best shot at your life going on beyond your death. So the whole Moloch image is also an image of being against eternal life, against the life of the age to come. Gehenna would have meant, symbolically speaking, that there would be no child of promise, no Isaac, no Jacob, no generations to come through whom God would act. It was a dead end. It was where death had dominion over life. And this means that when Jesus is talking about Gehenna, he is not talking about a place of eternal conscious torment, but of a way of living and being that results in ending God's promises and refusing the life of the age to come that God offers to those who are faithful. You could also take this another way. When you act against what is real, against the flow of reality, the truth of it, you are essentially throwing yourself into the arms of Moloch. It'll be a terribly painful thing, not only to you, but also to those who are affected by your stupid actions. You will get burned, yes, but others will also get burned. They will be sacrificed because of what you have done or what you are doing. Jesus's call to his listeners is to recognize how things really are. God is love, not some tyrannical, bullheaded, dumb idol. Still, When we fail to live in accordance with that love, the truth of being, there will be, so to speak, hell to pay. 
We're likely to throw some imagery from Revelation into the mix here, but I'm not convinced that we can simply conflate the imagery from the book of Revelation into the images that Jesus is alluding to. Although maybe we can. That's a, another discussion. Still, even knowing that there are other scholarly debates on these matters, it seems sensible to me to say that we need to understand Jesus's imagery primarily through his specific historical situation and what came before him rather than in terms primarily of what came afterwards like the images of hell that Dante talks about. It also seems to me that it's pretty close to impossible to take the Protestant eternal conscious torment narrative seriously without also setting up a whole host of immense metaphysical and theological problems. As I've argued elsewhere, if eternal conscious torment is the way to go, theologically speaking, then we have a God who is less powerful than sin, who loses to human will, or worse, in some Calvinist uh, streams, who demands punishment for the majority of people who have lived and will ever live. It's basically a theological mess. Worse, in some contemporary eternal burn theologies, we have a God who looks and sounds a lot like, if not exactly like, Moloch, a God who demands violent sacrifice to appease his wrath. It is in my mind, more reasonable to think that Jesus's Gehenna imagery warns us against any God who allows his own children to suffer in the way that Moloch allows his own children to suffer. It's more like a warning against embracing what many Reformed theologians call hell than a call for us to endorse hell. Having said all of this, though, I know that I've raised probably more questions than I've answered, and certainly I've probably also raised a few eyebrows. If you are genuinely curious about these things, there are many books that I could recommend. I'm just going to name a few that I think are particularly good. Have a look at the work of Robin Parry, especially his book, The Evangelical Universalist, which he wrote under the uh, pseudonym of Gregory MacDonald. It's a really great book. Uh, Robin Parry, incidentally, was my editor uh, for my, my own book, Seeing Things As They Are. And then you can have a read of Brad Jerzak's Her Gates Will Never Shut. It's a really great book. And then there is also Thomas Allen's book, Christ Triumphant. It's a really old book so and very thick. Uh, um, Robin Parry edited that just and, and footnoted it. So it's a, an amazing resource in, into some arguments around what the early church actually thought of uh, the, the notion of, of well, Gehenna and, and Hades and maybe even a bit of Tartarus thrown in there. Uh, I think that's a good enough start. And of course, all of us, well, not all of us, I guess, just those of us who are interested can look forward to David Hart's book. And that, my friends, is it for now. I appreciate you listening to this and hope that at least some of what I've offered here provokes further thought in you. I know, as I suggested, there is more to all of this than I could possibly say. But the great thing is, that the conversation can always carry on, and it must. Take care, everyone.